Before I start, I'm obliged to state that nothing in the following conversation should be referred to as medical advice to those suffering from mental health conditions. If you are affected by anything you hear in this episode, I have linked to websites you can use to get help and advice from. Thank you. Hi, my name's Archie and welcome to the Reconnecting Podcast. I'll be your host on a journey where I'll hopefully be talking to some of the best minds of our time on topics relating to the philosophy and psychology of mental health. Today we'll be focusing on the former of the two with this week's guest, Dr. Michael Cholby. Dr. Cholby, a professor of philosophy at the University of Edinburgh, where his studies focus on ethics, with particular emphases on suicide, grief, and moral psychology, among other things. He is the author, co-author, and editor of multiple books and scholarly works in relation to his research. Michael, welcome. Thank you. Really glad to be with you. Thank you you for your time. Sure. So, of all the topics that there are in the world to get philosophical about, what was the draw for you to ethics and moral psychology? Oh, well, I wish I could have, um, you know, provide you an exalted story about how I was drawn to it for profound reasons. But in truth, you know, I was a philosophy student uh, as an undergraduate, and then I opted to pursue a PhD. And I had some ideas what I wanted to focus on as a PhD student. Uh, Coming in as a PhD student, I was interested in things like philosophy of science and philosophy of language. Um, But I took courses um, in ethics and uh, seemed to take to it. And uh, my instructor said that I was good at it. So um, in some sense, you know, uh, the reasons were perhaps not particularly profound. Though I think as time has gone on, I think, um, you know, it's a cliche thing uh, to say, but it's really true that you know, to study ethics is to study, in some sense, you know, the essentials of the human condition. You know, why, what, you know, what should we, what should we hope for ourselves? What should we pursue in life? How should we relate to other people? How should communities be structured? Um, and when I think about, you know, the prospect of being an academic, maybe in another field, um, it's very hard for me to imagine being as enthused about studying their questions as I feel the enthusiasm, my own enthusiasm for studying ethics is. So, you know, I think we're dealing in some in some serious matters and um, matters that uh, most any reflective person at certain points in life uh, turns to. Um, So I think, you know, sort of living a full and complete human life, we really can't do that without um, investigating ethical questions. Yeah, I think as a as a society, we would be remiss to leave out questioning some of the more irrational functions of the of the being, you know. Um, I think, you know, making sure that we question everything is, is, is part of, is part of human nature. And, you know, we do it from a young age. I think, you know, my, my mother used to tell me why is a crooked letter, but as you get older, you want to know why you want to know why to everything. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I think there's something to that. I think philosophy is this kind of curious undertaking because, uh, we pursue the questions that children ask, but we use very adult tools, right? We use, you know, tools of, of logic and reasoning um, to try to address questions that definitely do occur to children. And, you know, I think it's one of the misfortunes of life if people uh, mature into adolescence and into adulthood and they kind of lose their ability to engage those questions there or they become disinterested in them. Um, because in some sense, I think our, I think our children are our betters in that sense. They kind of know what questions to ask. Yeah, they know which yeah. questions count. I think <laughs> I almost I almost credit or discredit, however you want to call it, some of the functions of you know high school and primary school. There's such a set regime to what we learn that mm-hmm. there is a lack of questioning. And in my you know still my youth, but my after leaving unit, after leaving um, after leaving school, and sort of seeing the world for myself, and realizing that there were questions to be answered, reading mm-hmm. more philosophical literature, and trying to look at mm-hmm. the world from a perspective of questioning things again, really opened my eyes. Um, it sort of started with um, a little bit of everything, from you know Camus to Nietzsche to whatever mm-hmm. I could get my hands on, and that led me to you, I guess. So. Mm. I read well, those are some big questioners. <laughs> yes. So Suicide the Philosophical Dimensions is one of your books. And I picked it up mostly out of fascination, partly out of preparation. Um and it really 
I, it's one it's honestly the quickest i've ever read a book i think um it truly captured a lot of the things that i think philosophy does very well is is capturing a lot of the things that people think and putting it down you know um mm -hmm. and i think it's it's an important topic personally but also globally to understand and discuss um and i'd just like to have a conversation with you briefly just about what brought you to writing this book specifically well the origin of this book is uh really straightforward i appreciate your comments for the book by the way but the origins of the book is pre are pretty straightforward um in the early 2000s i uh submitted to the stanford encyclopedia of philosophy a proposal to write an encyclopedia entry on suicide i had written a little bit on the topic at that point and an editor at an academic press saw that um, encyclopedia entry and was apparently taken by it and suggested that the book, uh, book could be written based on um, that particular encyclopedia entry, which ended up being published, I think, for the first time in 2004. Um, so its origins are, are somewhat pedestrian, but I suppose its intellectual origins simply come from the observation that, um, you know, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, in countries like the United States and to a lesser extent the United Kingdom, you know, there was and, and continues to be a very lively debate around uh, assisted dying, physician-assisted suicide. Um, and that's a very important debate and one that I uh, have been uh, fortunate to contribute to. But as I read the philosophical and legal material on uh, the ethics of assisted dying, I very much felt like it um, had gone down a bit of a rabbit hole or had become a little bit too um, technical or a little bit too narrow. Um, and, it had become, and the way I sensed that or what I saw in particular there was that um, there just wasn't a discussion of what I took to be the most fundamental issue, right? Which is whether people have a kind of moral right to hasten their own death, that is to engage in suicidal behavior. Um, and so my sense was that we needed a book or we needed some scholarship that kind of, if you will, got back to basics or got back to the essentials. Um, you know, when we're talking about suicide, you know, what are we talking about? What is the phenomenon? Um, what are the moral arguments against it? What are the moral arguments in favor of our having a right to engage in suicide? So I felt that in a way I was um, trying to bring the debate kind of back to the fundamentals um, that sensed that I had sensed had um, perhaps gotten a little bit lost in that literature in the late 20th and early 21st century. Um, that said, the book does have a chapter on assisted dying, but it comes kind of at the end as a uh, almost as a coda in a way. So um, I really think I was trying to bring some systematic order to um, philosophical inquiry into suicide that I thought was lacking at the time. Um, and I think since then, I'm sorry, go ahead, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think I think it does that extremely well. Mm. Um, the, the, way, the way the book is laid out, and I suggest if anybody's listening to this to buy it and is interested to buy it and read it because it is a brilliant read. I don't often annotate or put things in my books and scribble on them but i was i was led there because you know as you're as you're reading these sorts of this sort of literature it sparks things in your brain where you go that makes sense and the way that michael has that way the way michael has sort of brought this book together is by as you say bringing it back to basics and giving an understanding for every part of where suicide leads us what it is why it's good, why it's bad, and everything in between. And um, I think that just as a conversation, I think the word suicide has been foggied and is is very sort of, I don't know, it, it's, it's a weird word that doesn't really mean anything anymore. <laughs> hmm. I think the, I think personally for me suicide evokes an emotion in the person in the context that it's referred to sure um so if i tell someone i tried to commit suicide they go oh, i'm so sorry to hear that and i go a i don't want your sympathy b you're saying that because you, you've been taught to say that mm -hmm. but if you hear about a suicide bomber they go oh it's terrible but the word suicide i don't genuinely believe evokes that much emotion in and of itself in too many people mm. And I think it's good the way that you've laid the book out because it it brings us 
literally in the first chapter to examples of the fact that suicide isn't just a depressed person taking their own life. It comes in many facets, and the best facet you put it is in in Star Trek, <laughs> in Spock, saying that the the needs of the the many outweigh the needs of the few. Mm-hmm. Um, he knew what he was doing would lead him to his death, mm-hmm. and um, he did it. And that act is suicidal, mm-hmm. but it's not as a, it's not what as a society we would consider suicide. Right. Um, and I think that perfectly leads me just into some of my bigger questions I have for you. <laughs> so, firstly, I would like to ask you, what do you believe, or why do you believe it's important to look, or what, sorry, I'm not going to edit these bits out, but why, why do you believe it is important, and what do you think we gain from looking at suicide and mental health through a philosophical lens? Oh, gosh. Um, many things. Um, well, you mentioned Camus earlier, and Camus famously said that suicide is the only important philosophical question. Camus was wrong about that. There are plenty of important philosophical questions besides suicide. But I think he had his finger on something very important, which is approximately this, that in some ways suicide represents uh, the sort of ultimate freedom of the human condition, right? We're brought into the world um, without uh, being given the choice of that, uh, of whether to be brought into the world, right? We're sort of here, not of our own accord. Um, And uh, we all live our lives from our first first personal perspectives, right? You know, going about our day-to-day affairs. And uh, to me, you know, what Camus was getting at is just the reality that uh, hastening our own deaths, bringing about our own deaths, represents in some sense a, a deep and profound freedom that we have Um, just in a metaphysical sense, not in a moral sense. And uh, the question of whether we should exercise that freedom then, right, seems like a very weighty question. Um, I think in terms of mental health, you know, we live in a society that has, I think most, I would say this mostly been a good development, but we live in a society that, uh, a world that uh, is beginning to take mental health much more seriously, but it has slowly over time kind of devolved, right, the uh, investigation of, of mental health um, into a question of, of medicine, right? So, uh, but it strikes me as m- that many questions that we have about our own well-being and how our lives are going and whether we're happy and so forth are really not questions that are going to be answered by medicine, right? They're not sort of medical questions. They're right. human and questions. There's no, right? there's no cure for it. Well, right, yeah. right. Well, not just that there's no cure. I mean, that, that sometimes there may be a cure, but even when there isn't, um, some of the questions that we have, I think, about our lives are really not indicative of medical problems, right? Um, you know, the problems that people have with, you know, alienation from their day-to-day lives or feeling like uh, they're in situations that feel uh, hopeless or stuck to them or that they feel uh, that they just don't have a place in the world, but don't feel like uh, they belong anywhere. Those are the kinds of thoughts that often occur in the minds of suicidal people. And those don't strike me as questions um, that can really be answered by medicine, right? Maybe medicine can help us in some ways, right? I mean, it can certainly provide us, you know, therapeutic resources, uh, in some cases, um, you know, physiological intervention, you know, pharmaceutical intervention. Um, But a lot of the problems that I think have been I've been addressing in my work kind of sit at the boundary in some sense between you know problems of medical science and just human problems right yeah I think I think a lot of the medical solutions for mental health are benign from the perspective that all they do is a like alleviate Mm -hmm. some of the issues they don't combat the issues taking an SSRI doesn't get rid of the boss that's horrible to you at work. It can give you the strength to deal with the issues. Mm -hmm. Um, And it gives you strength. It gives me strength to, you know, read literature such as yours. Not that it, (laughs) yeah, that that sounded sounded incorrect, but but, uh, it gives me the strength to, you know, challenge my views on the world, Mm -hmm. which may be too heavy and too weighty without them. Yeah. yeah. And it's a good, yeah. I think medical treatment. I, I enjoy. Yeah, medical yeah. treatment. I've heard people say, and I like this this sort of image, you know, that medical treatment for mental health, for serious mental health problems in particular, uh, 
gives people breathing room, right? It allows them, in a sense, to um, take stock of their situation, uh, perhaps in some cases ramp down the sense of emotional tumult, of being on a kind of emotional roller coaster, and sort of enables them maybe to um, recover some of their bearings with respect to, you know, their lives and the problems that they face. As you say, uh, those things don't typically um, address, right? The medical treatments don't typically address some of those life problems like, you know, our relationships with our employers and uh, relationships with our, with our partners, children, family members, what have you. Um, but they can, I think, give us, um, again, a little bit of, of sort of psychological oxygen, right? A little bit more uh, time and space to uh, process our problems and, and see them in a different light. Um, and, you know, when you think about many of the uh, things that, you know, clinicians do and that people at suicide uh, hotlines do, a lot of, of what they do in some senses is give people more time, right? Um, which, again, as you say, doesn't necessarily uh, eliminate the problems that uh, um, are the source of, of mental health distress, but it can, again, give people just a moment to, to catch their breath and, and see their situation in a different way. Yeah. So... In, in your book, you mentioned the phrase rational endorsement, and it's something that I really, it sort of clicked in my brain. It made a lot of things sort of fall into place. Mm -hmm. And so that leads me on to my next question for you is what role do you believe rational endorsement plays in separating suicide or the act of death through one's own valid acceptance that may death be the, that, that death may be the outcome mm -hmm. um, of the situation and taking one's own life due to suffering from, you know, mental health? Mm -hmm. Well, so one of the things that your question raises is the really intricate matter of how we just understand, right, the act of suicide. Uh, sometimes people, you know, pose the question in terms of how we define it. I'm not sure defining it is exactly what we're trying to do. Um, I think we're trying to get a handle on what the nature of the act is. So. Certainly people can do things that lead to their own deaths that we would not think of as suicide, right? You can just simply do something, uh, you know, foolhardy um, that leads to your death or uh, take a certain kind of risk and you end up uh, dead as a consequence of that risk. That doesn't seem to be what we're after when we're talking about suicide. We seem to be after, in some sense, someone undertaking some action with the acceptance of the probability or likelihood that the action will lead to their deaths, right? So. Uh, when, for example, people do risky things but undertake significant precautions in advance to try to prevent their deaths, like, you know, when the, uh, the parachute jumper, you know, checks his parachute a couple times before, before jumping out of the plane, well, you know, if the person happens to die as a result, uh, we would say, well, that's clearly not suicide. The person wasn't in any sense trying to die, right? They're actually actively trying not to die. Um, but there's a lot of behaviors that do pose risks to the self, um, that we know pose risks to the self, that are perhaps a little bit ambiguous, right? So um, people who uh, you know, treat uh, drug addiction, drugs addiction, uh, sometimes point out that it can be a little bit murky whether a person is, who's a drug addict is taking a very high dose of, let's say, heroin, um, expecting that they will die or simply risking the fact that they will die, or whether maybe they've crossed over a certain kind of psychological boundary and they're almost doing it in an attempt to die, right? Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I just want to interject quickly on that point um, because I myself am a drug addict. Ah. And when, it, when I came to that bit, I think, it really helped me understand the mental disposition I had towards my own life. Mm -hmm. um, and it was this sort of scary realization that I had absolutely no care in the world mm. about what I was doing with substances, mm -hmm. whatever it was, there was no sort of consideration of this right here could kill me. It doesn't matter how mm -hmm. much, whether I'm used yeah. to that much or whether I take it more or less. Right. I, I could die, but there was no there was no consideration ever yeah. in my brain. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and by my lights, that behavior perhaps could and should be classified as suicidal in a sense, right? In that uh, you were not sort of actively trying to avoid, perhaps, right, um, causing your own death through your own drug use. Um, you were perhaps accepting of that possibility. Um, it's it's 
a difficulty for my view, or at least an intricacy of my view, that there's going to be a very fine boundary between acting uh, in a way that's risky with the hope that you don't die and acting uh, in a risky way with the expectation that you might, right? And, and perhaps not actively avoiding that. You know, you mentioned the phrase rational endorsement. So on my view, the suicidal person acts with a kind of rational endorsement of dying, right? They, they think they have at least good enough reason to accept it as an outcome of what they do, right? Um, sometimes people will be more, uh, I suppose you might say, uh, resolute or decisive about this, right? That is, they may be uh, very much intending, right, through their actions uh, to bring about their own deaths. But I, I tend to think of those things uh, uh, in terms of gradations, right? Some people will again be very resolute or decisive. Some people will be perhaps less resolute or decisive. But I think we cross the boundary into suicidal conduct once a person is, in some sense, kind of indifferent to the fact, right, that their behavior, their risky behavior um, will, uh, uh, or could well result in their death. Um, so, yeah, but that 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 has been one of the hard. That's one of the hardest issues I think to sort of understand. Uh, sort of the place of seeking out death, right, in the mm. mind of the suicidal person. Yeah, it's a it's a weird sort of mindset to be in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, to talk of my own experience in when I, I i talked about it in my first in the first episode of the podcast that i put out and for me there was no sort of i i consider it to be the most selfish act i've ever had mm. the most selfish thing i've ever done as i believed i was doing it in an attempt to make everybody around me better and their lives better but in the moments the only person I actually thought about was myself because I didn't think about how it would affect anybody really you know I thought everyone would be happy but that's a ridiculous notion mm -hmm. um, and it's it's this weird sort of it's, it's a paradox of sort of emotion where you go oh, everyone would be happy because I'm dead but it's the complete opposite and um, you know if I tell someone oh, I tried to take my own life I get sympathy but it's not sympathy that i want mm -hmm. and it's this uh <laughs> it, it makes me ask questions of how how we can sort of bring suicide into a light that gives it more of a more understanding in in terms of why people do it I think it's 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 such a big question of why people do it. Mm -hmm. But I think when we want to go about talking about suicide, your one of your main areas of study, assisted dying, mm -hmm. comes into question. Mm -hmm. So I turn to one of the phrases, a phrase that you use in your book, safe, legal and rare. That was said in reference to abortion. And I feel personally that I agree with that phrase mm -hmm. in the sense of assisted suicide, because, you know, the, the, the cases for um, prohibition, when you prohibit something, there becomes a stigma. Mm -hmm. The war on drugs is the biggest example of prohibiting mm -hmm. something and causing chaos, you know? You you can see the examples of the prohibition of alcohol, sure. which caused you know gangsters to be everywhere and people misbehaving themselves. The war on drugs became a thing, and the stigma against suicide and assisted dying leads people to a dark place where they don't believe anyone will care about their feelings or people won't listen to them because what they are feeling is so against the norm and i wanted to ask you that do you think if it was legal everywhere that the slope would be as slippery as they're saying or do you think it would help alleviate some of the stigma around suicide? when you ask me about when you're asking about legality do you mean assisted dying or suicide itself As assisted dying assisted dying well uh so it's interesting. I'm actually working with uh, the cross-parliamentary group here in Scotland on end-of-life issues. 
and one of the things that that group is concerned with or will be attempting to do is to uh, introduce an assisted dying bill in Scotland probably in 2021. Um, and one of the things I like to emphasize in my public discussion of assisted dying is that we're not in chapter one now of the story about assisted dying. I would say we're in chapter, I don't know, two, maybe chapter three. Um, we've had assisted dying in the Netherlands uh, since the 1990s. We've had assisted dying in Oregon in the United States since the early 1990s, mid 1990s. Uh, it's existed in uh, the US state of Washington since around 2005. Um, another uh, 10 or so states have legalized it in the US subsequently. Uh, it's legal under certain auspices in Canada, um, you know, Belgium, um, you know, uh, other parts of Europe. So at this point, right, I no longer think we should take seriously arguments that are speculative about what the consequences of the legalization of assisted dying are. I think we have enough information to know what they're likely to be, right? We're not in the first chapter, right? We're not sort of dealing in sort of hypotheticals or, or fiction, right? Um, and I think what we have seen by and large is that most all of the predictions that opponents of legalized assisted dying have made uh, about what would occur once, once it was legalized have really not uh, been borne out. Um, so, uh, you know, the idea that uh, large numbers of people would be uh, subject to this against their will has by and large not been borne out. Uh, that particular groups, for example, the disabled might be particularly uh, sort of vulnerable if, if assisted dying were legalized doesn't seem to be true. The prediction that uh, assisted dying would undermine the quality of palliative care for, for terminally ill people or uh, undermine the willingness of physicians to provide palliative care to terminally ill people, that hasn't been borne out either. So I think at this point, um, I think it would be justifiable uh, for those who favor the legalization of assisted dying to say in response to these slippery soap arguments that they really kind of do amount to fear mongering in a sense. Because yeah. oh, no, I, yeah. I completely agree with that. Yeah, I mean, because at this point um, we have enough information to know, right, what would likely happen. Yeah. So. Yeah, um, and for those that don't know what quite what we're talking about, the slippery slope is sort of the the analogy of there's a boulder on a cliff mm -hmm. and you push it off and it gains speed as it goes down. Mm -hmm. And people used that argument in reference to assisted dying a, a while ago when it wasn't as prevalent as it is now. Um, to sort of give the idea that if it happened, then doctors would, you know, make their care worse or, mm -hmm. you know, give less attention to minority groups or the elderly mm -hmm. or the disabled or any any one of those things. And when I, when I read about it, I sort of just gained this idea of it's not about, it's not about fact a lot of the time when it comes to assisted dying and, and people it comes it comes to emotion you know mm -hmm. i think when we when we uh, at the start when we when you talked about uh, Camus and it, it for, for me assisted dying should be legal everywhere mm -hmm. with caveats with regulations as everything is but i don't believe that anyone can have any say over whether someone wants to take their own life in a controlled environment around mm -hmm. in, a, in a way that is safe to do so mm -hmm. i don't believe we should have any jurisdiction over how someone wants to leave the world sure well you know that line of thought i think has um long been one of the arguments in favor of legalized assisted dying that certainly has a lot of currency with a lot of people um when we think about the notion of personal autonomy and the moral importance of personal autonomy, I think we tend to think about the major decisions that people make in their lives, right? The ones that are uh, deep and profound influences on how their life turns out. So questions like, or issues like, you know, what religion one practices, who you marry, uh, where you live, what profession you pursue. Um, and I would say that, in my opinion at least, uh, the circumstances of your own death uh, are among those major choices. Uh, there's something about the end of life, you know, its final chapter, so to speak, 
that um, you know sort of gives it outsize significance, right, in our understanding of how our life goes, right? It's not just one more event, right, <laughs> in a person's life. It seems like a very important one, like, you know, uh, you know, getting married or becoming a parent or, you know, entering a profession or whatever it is. So if it is one of those kind of momentous life choices, then it's probably one of those choices that, you know, to the extent that it can be done safely and, and consistent with the rights and well-being of other people, uh, that should be left to individuals, as, as you say. Um, so uh, I think that's that's long been one of the most the most potent arguments uh, that we have uh, in favor of assisted dying, um, and you know I think there's something to that, right? It's a little hard to know why we think end of life matters quite as much as it does, but it does seem to, right? We do think that the the sort of shape or arc of a person's life is uh, greatly determined, not exclusively, of course, but greatly determined by how it ends. Right, the setting in which it ends and the circumstance in which it ends. Um, you think about some of the kind of, you know, narratives that we have, you know, about about dying and death and its place in the human condition. You know, uh, I've often had my students uh, read, you know, Tolstoy's Death of Ivan Ilyich, right, which is a story where, you know, you can read it as uh, its protagonist is kind of redeemed by his death, right? His life is perhaps sort of not very admirable or meaningful, but because of the way he dies, there's a certain kind of redemption or uh, you know, the death of someone who is, uh, uh, you know, dying for a heroic cause, you know, the, the example of Spock you mentioned earlier, I suppose, would be an example of that. So death is, you know, this really important chapter in our lives. And if it is this vital and important chapter, um, and we want to have people have a, a, a say in it, right, and what it looks like and what the circumstances are like, yeah, that seems to me to be one of the most potent arguments in favor of, of legalizing assisted dying. Perhaps in some ways, you know, argument in favor of, of a less uh, stigmatic approach to suicide too. Hmm. It's like I can I can start smoking at the age of eighteen and die of cancer, but I can't get to the age of eighty with a perfect health, bill of health, but be told I have terminal cancer and can't choose to die. It seems somewhat backwards yeah. um, from mm. from from my perspective yeah. to give to not give the choice to to go out on one's own will. Um, I think. It, it, if you're in considerable pain and you have the conscious ability to consent to these things, um, you know, we, you can, we can talk about living wills or we can talk about Ulysses contracts. We can talk mm -hmm. about all of these things that can be put in place when a person is of sound mind in front of another person to give um, certification that they are and then when maybe their their health takes a turn, you can be you can be administered what you have consciously and yeah. rationally decided is right for you. And I think that's where we should lead the conversation and where I'm glad people like you are in existence to lead that conversation. <laughs> sure. Because it, 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 personally for me, if I got to you're an, an age where I thought, you know, I've seen, I've seen, I've seen what I've got. I've, I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt, <laughs> forgotten it all and done it again. Um, you know, I, I believe that if there was nothing left for me and my quality of life would be less than is worth being alive for, I would want the choice. Mm -hmm. I would maybe wouldn't take it, but I would at least want it. Sure. Well, I mean, I think there's a powerful argument, you know, that many philosophers have made that, that says, you know, yes, you know, we should hope for a long life, but it's not always the case that our lives are better for being longer. Uh, there, there are sometimes, right, uh, fates worse than death, and one among them can be continuing to live. Um, you know, I think assisted dying for, for, you know, the terminally ill or those who have, you know, incurable uh, conditions that, uh, you know, uh, cause unbearable suffering, and that's sort of one uh, sort of category of legally regulable you know, acts of self-killing. Of course, you know, the more complicated examples are, well, other kinds of situations, right, where people, uh, you know, don't have a fatal illness, don't have some condition that would uh, be responsible for unbearable suffering, when perhaps, yeah. you know, their uh, thinking is, uh, in some sense, emotionally clouded by certain kinds of mental illnesses. I mean, what we know about things like depression, bipolar disorder, uh, suggests to us that, you know, they tend to make our Kind of emotional appraisals of our situation, um, not terribly accurate. I mean, you were mentioning earlier, 
you know, the, the notion that, well, people often think or suicidal people often think that their deaths will be a great benefit to others, but in fact, they'd be terrible for others. That's a kind of, um, you know, failure of emotional appraisal, right? Sort of failure to appraise your own situation well because of, you know, certain kinds of, I guess you'd say emotional interference, right, that come with those kinds of conditions. So, you know, I, I actually think of assisted dying as in certain ways from the standpoint of the philosophy of suicide, assisted dying for the terminally ill is, is an easy case or easier case. Um, but of course, yeah. there's plenty of hard cases. I think, I think there's never going to be a clear cut. Here is the answer. One line. Um, everything's clear up, cleared up now. I don't think we can quite say that that's ever the case for anything in this world. Um, but I think my final big question for you is what do you believe makes assisted suicide what is a requirement of assisted dying that makes it more morally permissible right so i take a question to be something like what what conditions would have to be met right for for yeah 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 for for assisted dying to be morally permissible well i mean i think um, you know, there's interesting disputes about that. So, you know, the way, for example, the law has developed in the United States, uh, assisted dying is reserved for persons who are terminally ill, that is to say, that have a diagnosable medical condition that, according to at least two uh, medical professionals, is likely to end the person's life otherwise in six months or less. Um, I think that's a good starting point for the discussion, um, in large measure because when you think about that population, people who are likely to be uh, dead in six months in any case. Um, if they were given the option, right, of hastening their deaths, that is to say, engaging in assisted dying, um, well, you know, they would lose out on something perhaps, but the risks are relatively small, right? That is to say, uh, being deprived, if you will, of, of six months of life, um, while that could be a misfortune, it is sort of from the standpoint of your whole life, a, a somewhat minor misfortune. Um, I think things get a little bit trickier when we move to people who have conditions that uh, are not fatal, that is to say are not terminal, not likely to kill them, but are simply very bad conditions to have, right? So uh, in uh, some places in the world, uh, Holland, for example, uh, you can be eligible for assisted dying if your condition uh, is responsible for unbearable suffering, even if that condition will not cause you um, uh, to die eventually. Um, and I guess my own sense is that um, while I, I'm somewhat more anxious by the legalization of assisted dying for those whose suffering is merely unbearable, um, there's a very strong welfare case, right, to, uh, uh, to allowing it, right? So compare the person who, again, is terminally ill, who is in an unfortunate state, uh, they're likely to, to be dead of their condition in six months or less, with a person who has a condition that could be responsible for unbearable suffering for a year, two years, five years, 10 years, right? Well, you know, they have a good argument, right? Why should, why should that person uh, sort of be allowed to, to cut short their life by six months in order to prevent themselves from living a bad life? But I'm not uh, given the right to cut it short by a year or two years or five years where that seems far worse, right? To have to put up with, you know, an even longer stretch of, of if you will, very bad quality of life. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's, that's an important debate, but beyond that, you know, I'm happy to acknowledge, you know, many of the constraints that have been put in place, you know, for example, where assisted dying is legal in the United States, uh, that you do need to uh, be evaluated psychiatrically perhaps, you know, to, to um, uh, indicate or to find out whether you are likely making a decision that uh, is informed by, uh, you know, rational forethought um that you should be notified about what your what your other options are right whether you are in a position where you can be treated uh what the prospects are for recovery um and then you know i think there's interesting debates kind of really in about the the philosophical purpose of, of medicine as to whether or not we should be uh having physicians involved in the administration of lethal substances you know in most places in the united states there you know really is assisted dying that we're talking about but not really with the sort of medical assistance of physicians. They, they prescribe the drugs, but they don't actually administer them. Um, that comes from a long-standing medical norm that says that uh, physicians ought not um, assist in the deaths of their patients, at least in an, in an immediate sense. 
Um, but, you know, you could also imagine regimes of assisted dying where physicians aren't involved. Some have proposed that there could be a class of individuals, uh, you know, euthanists, if you will, who are medically trained professionals for whom this is their line of work. Um, so I would say, you know, the conditions, uh, I'm, I'm willing to certainly embrace the, the, the terminality as, as one sufficient condition, but also perhaps under some circumstances, conditions involving unbearable and incurable suffering. Uh, along with some evaluation of, of one's rational competence. Uh, those seem to me to be a pretty good foundation for uh, when we should think that, that assisted dying would be morally justified, and also then when we should try, or how we should try to encode assisted dying into our into our legal regimes too. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, you, you touched on something in there um, around if someone says they would like to have assisted death that they should be you know they could be psychologically evaluated mm -hmm. and i feel that just that in and of itself could lead to that person changing their mind mm -hmm. for, for, for for the better you know um it could be that you know as we've as we've said someone that takes their own life as i like to put it because i don't feel suicide is the right sort of phrase for you know someone that takes their own life due to mental health reasons um, isn't always thinking rationally. You say in the book that there's most people only think for five minutes between thinking and doing, you know? And that, I, I, I told someone that the other day and they went, five minutes? And I was like, that, that, that's all it took me. You know, there's no, yeah. not many normal human beings have a, have a life-changing decision in five minutes. No one thinks, you know what? I'll just buy an Aston Martin. I don't have the money for it, but I'll buy an Aston Martin. <laughs> yeah. There's no move to Scotland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that, 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 that is an irrational decision, but, um, yeah, no, sorry. Dang. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it's chilly up there at the moment. Yeah. Well, but what you say, I mean, we do know, right. That a lot, again, a lot of the, the psychiatric uh, conditions associated with suicidal thinking, they do, they don't sort of lead people to be, you know, psychotic, you know, that they sort of, you know, have visions or something, but they do, you know, mess with people's emotional processing, right? Their sense of their own well-being and, and sense of their prospects in the world. And, you know, in terms of, of making a determination of psychological competency, a condition for uh, suicide or assisted dying being available to people, it's worth keeping in mind that that could have one of two roles, right? So one role it could have is that it would actually bar somebody from having legal access to assisted dying if they're found not to be psychologically competent. Um, that's one route one could go. But another route one could go is to say, well, that you have to have the psychological appraisal uh, simply to tell you whether or not you're psychologically competent, right? Uh, and that might be important just in the sense that, you know, a person might want to know themselves whether this is a decision that they're undertaking uh, in a sound state of mind, even if the state isn't telling them, well, look, you know, you're not in a sound state of mind, so we're going to stop you from doing this, it's right? Or we're going to, to not, you know, opinion. foster this. Yeah. Well, it's that, to, or to give us a sort of perspective on our situation, yeah. Yeah. right? Um, um, that, as you were mentioning a moment ago, might lead us to, to sort of second guess this. But, you know, the, those, those, uh, the number you cited, you know, people thinking about this for, you know, five, 10 minutes or so forth, I mean, suicidal thinking often has very deep origins, but the plan often has very shallow origins, right? Uh, you know, it comes about um, somewhat impulsively or, or in response to, you know, somewhat minor phenomena, you know, that happen to people. Um, this is why, for example, with respect to suicide prevention, we know that um, keeping uh, people from having access to, you know, the tools and instruments uh, that would enable them to, to end their lives um, is a very effective way, right, to, to prevent suicide because most people, again, don't hatch a sophisticated, complicated plan in their lives. So uh, they tend to, you know, take advantage of whatever uh, sort of lethal or semi-lethal options are in their environments. And, um, you know, they don't, if, if they don't have uh, uh, one option, they don't tend to embark on a complicated plan to acquire another one and so forth. Um, and from the standpoint of, of sort of public health and, and suicide as a public health issue, that seems pretty important. We, as, as, you know, some researchers at Harvard have said, you know, means matter, right? If you prevent people getting access to the means of lethal self-harm, 
that's a pretty powerful way of preventing people from from engaging in it. Um, but yeah, uh, it is important to keep keep in mind that you know yes, often suicidal thinking has has rather deep psychological causes, but suicidal planning often doesn't have very deep psychological yeah, causes. Yeah, I can attest to that. There was very yeah. little um, thought or effort put into yeah. what I did. It was more just this is available. This will hopefully do it. You know. Yeah. Um, do you believe ever that guilt has? I think I think you go over it in the book as a responsibility to others can stop you from taking your own life. And I think guilt is the emotion that you would feel in that case. Do you think that, it, I can't remember how you phrase it, but it's the sort of um, need or the, uh, it, it, it's, it's having someone that relies on you or, you know, mm -hmm. having responsibilities to fulfill and sure. by taking your sure. life, you are in turn, you know, ruining somebody else's or making somebody else's harder. Sure. sure. Well, there's a sort of wide battery of, of arguments that philosophers, theologians, others have given for the uh, putative immorality of suicide. Most of these don't strike me as terribly convincing. But the one that I think is probably the most convincing and that I suppose I would encourage uh, those who ever have suicidal thinking to actually ponder is just the argument you mentioned, right? Which I think in the book I call an appeal to role obligations, right? The idea that um, each of us stands, right, in fairly specific social roles with other people. We are someone's, uh, you know, spouse, someone's parent, someone's sibling, uh, someone's caregiver. Um, and those roles come with certain uh, obligations that very often, right, will not be fulfilled if, if we end our lives via suicide. Um, so of the moral arguments for the immorality of suicide, this is probably the one that I think has the most force and probably the one that um, people probably should think about very carefully before they, they hasten their deaths. Um, you know, uh, it's not to say that it's not possible for your suicide to, to violate the rights of, of, you know, sort of strangers or society at large or something like that. But it's probably those sort of in your immediate familial and social circles that are going to be the most the most impacted. Um, and of course, it's it's uh, a fair it can be a fairly devastating thing um, for individuals to undergo uh, grief right as a consequence of someone close to them uh, ending their lives via suicide. I'm actually uh, um, enmeshed right now in a sort of long-term philosophical project on the ethics of grief. And suicide seems to prompt a particularly uh, acute, right, form of grief um, in others, yeah. um, in large part because it feels very much like a kind of rejection of the bereaved person, right? Um, you know, uh, it's not merely the case that the person, uh, the deceased individual who, who died via suicide, they didn't sort of suffer a misfortune in the usual sense, right? They, they opted to leave the world. And that hurts, yeah. right? Yeah, that hurts. It's almost you know, um, <laughs> like a, you know, going out, going out with a middle finger up, but by accident, almost, you know. Yeah, and yeah, I think you it know, can be it can be mis misinterpreted by loved ones in a in as you say sure. in a way that can feel like rejection or, you know, you, a lot of people never leave a note, so you never know what's going on. Sure, you never sure. know why they left. You never know whether you're accountable. And I think that can, as as as, as you say, it can definitely affect people um in, in in a multitude of ways yeah. um and also as you say in your book the the arguments that are presented by a multitude of people for the um impermissibility of of, of of suicide the sort of arguments against it are somewhat tangible and ambiguous with the the the, the responsibility for roles um mm -hmm. being the more um conscious and the more um, sound of all of them and the arguments yeah. for um, suicide having a bit more structure but um, I wouldn't want to give away too much of what's in your books so that <laughs> we can uh, encourage those yeah. to buy them yeah yeah well I think uh, you know uh, it was Chesterton right who had that comment who said something like you know you kill another you kill that person you kill yourself you 
you kill the whole world, right? In a sense, right? You're sort of deciding, right, that that the world is not for you. Someone's a bit of a dog. And in this sense, it's kind of the ultimate. Yeah, well, yeah. But, you know, he's he's <laughs> right in the sense that it's kind of the yes. ultimate divorce, yes, right? It sort is. of saying, you know, not merely not merely am I sort of splitting with you, I'm splitting with you and you and you and you, mm -hmm. and it, it's a sort of, uh, I think suicide can be understood also as a kind of unsettling commentary on the world that the suicidal person leaves. Um, I think that's another reason that, it, that, that um, suicide can often be uh, a source of very intense or acute sort of grief because in some ways the suicidal person invites us to ask ourselves, gee, was, were they right, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> is, the world, is the world everything that I think it is? Is it in fact as commodious and happy a place as I suppose it is? Mm. Um, so I think that's another source of people uh, of anxiety that suicide causes because the suicidal person is kind of commenting, right, on, on our world in affairs, a way, or, yeah. or can be. And, and throws and, everybody um, else's worldview into sort of, uh, into question. Yeah. We're all like, well, if, if they're leaving, should I leave too? Um, yeah, it can't be that good of a party if, if somebody that I think is, uh, you know, uh, quite you know reasonable gone. and of reasonable mind has decided to leave. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> it can't be so great. Um, that said, you know, again, maybe sometimes those per people are making a, a, a wrongheaded judgment too. Exactly. Um, so, but yes, I mean, certainly there's a long history of argumentation philosophy, you know, within within uh, the Christian religious tradition, within other traditions. Uh, that attempts to show that there's a categorical uh, wrongness associated with suicide, those arguments don't strike me as, as successful. Yeah. Um, I think the arguments that, that should have some sway over our minds are those very kind of local and intimate kinds of considerations. Hmm. That's amazing. Genuinely, I am very grateful for your time this evening. Um, sure, sure. And uh, yeah, I think we're going to leave it there just for now. And um, I, I really, really am, uh, am grateful for your time. Not a problem. Not a problem. Before I go, I must say that Christmas is not an easy time for most people. If you've been affected by anything I've mentioned in this episode of the Reconnecting Podcast, please look to the description where I have left links and numbers for you to be able to seek help. From personal experience, I know that one of the best ways to seek help is to pick up the phone and call a friend, for you never know what you might get. Have a lovely Christmas. Goodbye.